Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Sydney Ideas tonight. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here with Ade Ola Fayehun. Thank you. Um, a journalist and um, a political commentator um, from Nigeria. And of course, you all know Julian Moro from The Chaser. Um, I don't think I need to introduce him. Um, we have uh, an evening of uh, discussions on politics and humor and satire and the media. When I thought about this event, I uh, I recalled how it was for me to grow up in the Italy of the 70s and 80s, where politics was absolutely not a laughing matter. It was a deadly serious matter, uh, with uh, shootings uh, reported every day on the news, uh, with political terrorism, uh, and with danger in the air at all times. However, it seems like things have changed a lot. Uh, Political uh, satire, uh, which tonight we will hear about, especially from the African context, but is by no means limited to that, has become uh, quite a widespread phenomenon uh, in all the countries where media is still relatively free and there is freedom of expression. It is an interesting phenomenon that we laugh at politics. If we look around us at the politicians of today, Quite likely, if we are not crying, we are laughing. Um, perhaps there is something in political satire that explains us why we do that, and I hope that this will be one of the things that we will get to tonight. Now, without further ado, um, I would like to uh, introduce the work of uh, Adeola. Um, Adeola is uh, quite a sensation. Her work has widespread resonance in the African continent and through the African diaspora that follows her very closely in order to stay in touch with the news. Keeping It Real is Adeola's show, uh, and it's a show that calls upon African politicians especially and unmasks the pretenses, the lies, uh, the use and abuse of populism and religion uh, and works towards upholding transparency and fighting corruptions when possible. She is a social media phenomenon with hundreds of thousands of followers and uh, many, many viewers, millions of viewers on YouTube. And in order to give you a taste of the work that she does, before I leave the word to her, we will play you a couple of short clips to just warm you up. Election had not started and the policemen were intimidating people. I am in pain! I am in severe pain! Che, the man is in pain. Call 911, 911. If anything happens to me, the Inspector General of Police to be unaccountable. Governor Fayoche, who did this to you? I was slapped by a policeman who kicked me. What kind of doctor would do this kind of arrangement? Hanging broken hand on broken neck so that the neck will be fully the broken neck. Hapa, a 
They need to fire that doctor. Receive power to succeed yes. me in Jesus. Amen. Amen. When was this? Two days after he was shot. Damn! The man got back. He bounced back quickly. See him carrying the big Bible with the same broken hand. He's even clapping with the broken hand and he's able to dance. For those of you that are not Nigerians, I need to let you understand that we experience such miracles every election in Nigeria. I'm talking about your favorite pastor, you know, the number one prophet in Africa, according to him. His followers are recently circulating it online as legitimate miracle. And I'm like, uh-uh, that is not legitimate. Do I know the names of your children? No, man of God. Did you tell me? No, I didn't tell you. Who has an iPad? An iPad. Can I use this iPad and the capture? So now I want you guys to pay attention to how the man of God captures someone's picture spiritually. see him double tap on the picture gallery <laughs> that picture was already saved on the ipad do you see people crying see i give up on africans So as you can see, Adola has the <clears throat> incredible talent of championing some very, very serious issues with a lot of spirit and a lot of good humor. And uh, it is this that makes her very, very special. And it is thanks to the good efforts of Julian that she's with here tonight. So please join me in welcoming her here. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me here tonight. Honestly, I'm humbled to be here tonight. And I'm so excited because I found out that some prime ministers graduated from this school, so maybe I'll be a prime minister someday. <laughs> um, also, now that I've been at the University of Sydney, I can boldly go back to, I can go to Nigeria and tell everybody that I, ha that I now have a degree from the University of Sydney. <laughs> because a Nigerian senator did that and totally got away with it. That was until we caught up with his uh, scam. So, and you guys will see more about that later. So I'm very, very grateful that you guys uh, would have me here tonight. Oh, by the way, for the cameraman, please get a picture of me. I've never seen myself this big. <laughs> this is for the people of my village. <laughs> so that they can know that their girl has made it in life. <laughs> that their girl has arrived. This is as good as it gets when your picture can be this big. Please get me with. Did you? <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, yes. Now I can go home safely. Thank you to the people of my village for raising me. That is why I'm here tonight. Um, so I'm very grateful to the chaser that invited me. Uh, that is Julian. And before I go on, when I got his email, I actually thought it was a scam. <laughs> I was like, Australia? Why would anybody in Australia offer me free flights uh, to Australia, offer to put me in a nice hotel in Australia? And I was like, is this a scam? Does he know that I'm a Nigerian? Like, <laughs> you don't scam a Nigerian. And I was so sure that the next thing that he would ask for would be my bank account information. <laughs> 
uh, but I'm very happy that it wasn't a scam, so thank you so much for having me here. Um, so I'm here tonight, actually, speaking of scam, to talk about how one of the richest countries on earth is constantly being scammed every single day and being robbed by its very own leaders. Uh, despite being an oil-producing country, for example, we still have to queue for petrol, for oil. Every year we have fuel scarcity, uh, which makes you wonder, how can you be an oil-producing country and even your own people don't have oil? But the people that we supply oil, they always have more than enough. So uh, we we have so many resources in Nigeria besides oil, you know, that should make us one of the leading countries on earth. We should definitely be one of the richest countries. We have a population of 180 million people, great manpower. We have a lot of educated people, smart people, great doctors, great artists. Our music is everywhere. Our movie industry is the third largest in the whole world. And you know, the problem is the world would never know how great Nigeria is because we're constantly being scammed by our officials. And you know, we didn't know that there's a problem. Like I didn't know that there was a problem because for 19 years of my life, I lived in Nigeria. I never knew anything was wrong until I got out of the system. So I thought it was normal not to have electricity for days. I thought it was normal. And you know, as Nigerians, our first instinct is not to go to the power company and fight for our rights, demand for our rights. Our first instinct is to just cope with the situation. So we go out, we buy power generators. So in Nigeria, every household has at least one power generator. In this picture, it's uh, several businesses, several shops. So every shop has its own power generator because there's no light. And you can only imagine, a site like this is very common in Nigeria, by the way. So you can only imagine uh, the air pollution, not to talk about the noise pollution. So we just cope with the situation. And so besides not having constant electricity, I had no idea that um, it's not normal not to have running water at all times. Uh, a lot of people in Nigeria would just we just get their own butthole. So we just cope with the situation. Now, something happened 15 years ago. I moved to the US to go to college. And I think living in the US is bad. It's very, very bad. Because <laughs> living in America can bring out your dark side. If, yes, it's true. If you're not careful, you start thinking freely. You know what I mean? <laughs> Start thinking for, and if you're not careful, you start asking questions, you know? For example, when I got to the US and I saw the roads and I saw the stable electricity, the running water, it suddenly dawned on me that I, was, I had been scammed my entire life and I was really angry. Now, you know, for some people, when they leave their country and they move to a Western, uh, a Western world, they, they are excited, they are happy. I was angry. I was genuinely very angry. And, um, it's just because I realized that I had been scammed my whole life. For example, I couldn't sleep for the first two weeks when I got to the US, and it's because the lights didn't go off, and I wasn't used to that. So I kept, <laughs> it's true, I, I really missed up Nepa, down Nepa. That's what we say whenever there is no light in Nigeria. When there is no light, we say down Nepa. Nepa is the power company before they changed the name. And so when the light comes back, you could hear people from miles away shouting, up Nepa, up Nepa, that means there's light. So the first two weeks I would stare at the bulb in my dorm room, waiting for it to go off. And I'll be like, any moment, any moment now, it should go off. Like, Dang, the thing did not go off. What? Something is wrong. Some I was genuinely afraid for Americans. I was like, <laughs> how can your lights not go off? It was 
surreal for me because I wasn't used to that. And so I would wake up again and be like, no, it didn't go off, it's still on. So I realized that I was so used to abnormality. You know, you can be so used to abnormality that it becomes normal. So that was my life. And um, it's just like how you guys have it here in Australia, how you've been changing um, <laughs> your prime ministers. You know, I heard you had seven prime ministers in 10 years. Now that's abnormal, okay? <laughs> you guys are starting to get used to abnormality. <laughs> and by the way, when will you guys become a republic? Like. <laughs> you know, in the time that you guys have been debating this, Nigeria has been a republic four times already. <laughs> so make up your mind, guys. And <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to do something about the situation back home, and I wanted to call out the scammers that we call leaders. Um, but you know, it's very hard where I come from to, to say the truth, especially because respect is very, very important in Nigeria. Respect, you're supposed to respect the elderly people in my culture when you see an elderly person, you kneel to greet them. You know, it's sort of like bowing for an elderly person. You're supposed to kneel down to greet them. You're supposed to address them by their titles. Nigerians love their titles. No offense to the Nigerians here. What's up, my Nigerian people? Any Nigerian here? Y'all here? Don't worry, we'll talk after the service. Um, <laughs> Nigerians love their big titles. And you know, you, you, how do you navigate through that? For example, I'm going to show you guys a video of a Nigerian man that was addressed as a mister and he had to, this was during a live interview on the national TV, and he had to make it known that he's not just a mister, he's an elder. Let, let me quickly go to uh, Mr. Kimwamiwezi, uh, Deputy National Chairman of the P, uh, PDP for, th for the southern region of the country. So, well, thank you very much, you, for having me this evening. Let me make one slight correction. I am elder, not Mr. See what I have to deal with. <laughs> Who cares whether you're uh, like we, we, they were supposed to talk about an important issue, and so when you're an elder, when you're a chief, oh the chiefs especially they love to be addressed as chiefs, but they're not doing what they're elected or appointed to do, but they're really big with their title. So respect is very big in Nigeria, so I had to find a way to navigate through, because it, it's, it's kind of hard. How, you, it's like finding a way to say that an elderly person stole something while respecting them at the same time. Now that's hard. How do you respect a thief? You get what I'm saying? Like, I'm supposed to respect these people. And so that's when I thought about satire. And you know what satire is. It's using humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity, especially politicians. Amen, somebody. So I thought, okay, if you want respect, I'll give you respect. So when I go on my show, I would kneel down for them. You know, I will call them my fathers in the Lord. Um, I will call them my uncles. All the thieves in Nigeria are now my uncles, by the way. <laughs> I call them all my uncles and you know, I would uh, respect them, make them laugh, and then of course I'll call them thieves because that's what they are. So it's like, if you want respect, I would respect you, but I will also keep it real with you. So you can't really say that I disrespected you when I just knelt down for you, like for you. I just called you my uncle, what more do you want? If you're a chief, I'll call you a chief, but then I will also keep it real with you. So um, the stories that I've had to cover, so many of them are so ridiculous. For example, a Nigerian senator in the um, Nigerian upper house kidnapped himself on the day that he was supposed to appear in court. Um, 
Yeah, on the day he was supposed to appear in court for allegedly giving weapons to thugs, he kidnapped himself, and then he said that he was he said he was kidnapped by four gunmen and that they were shooting sporadically. See that that really got me. He said they were shooting sporadically, but for some reason he was able to see a tree and then he they probably put down their weapons, I don't know, and waited for him to climb the tree. <laughs> And so he said he was on, on the tree in the wilderness for 11 hours. So I'm thinking they were probably just parading and purposely ignored him. They stopped shooting for 11 hours, and then after 11 hours, they let him go back home. In any case, he reappeared after his court case had been adjourned, and then he called the press conference to tell us about his story. Now, I'm going to play the video. It's a little bit long, but so that you guys can get it created a barricade and started shooting sporadically. Jesus! They started shooting sporadically. So do you have any evidence of the shooting, like the car that was damaged or anybody that was shot? Nobody. No, nobody was. Yes, thank you. Continue. Continue. I would just say through the grace of God, not by wisdom, by knowledge or anything, through the grace of God, I climbed, I saw a tree and I climbed it. Hi, Uncle you don't mean it. You saw a tree as they were shooting at you and then you climbed the tree. <laughs> I love you. Um, <laughs> <nobody. laughs> Sorry, I'm not supposed to laugh. So you saw it. <laughs> I'm shooting at you. You saw it. <laughs> and you climbed it. You climbed it. That, that's wonderful. I was on that tree when I saw four of them passed. After a while, they passed again. Of course, they passed again. I'm trying to imagine him climbing a tree. <laughs> it's not good. All the images coming to my head, they are bad. <laughs> trying to imagine me not climbing a tree. I'm sorry, my uncle. It was having a short tree. See, I knelt for him in the middle of um, abusing him, in the middle of insulting him. I knelt for him. So he can't say that I disrespected him. Anyway, this same senator uh, once claimed that he has seven degrees because he has been to schools like Harvard, maybe for like a, a, maybe like a few weeks course or a few days seminar, and then he will go back to Nigeria and say he has a degree from Harvard, which is why I believe I just got my degree from University of Sydney <laughs> tonight. So um, when he said he has seven degrees, I thought that was fascinating, so I made this video. I have seven degrees. I'm a graduate of London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm also a graduate of Harvard University. London School of Economics released a statement. They said that you did not get a degree from a London School of Economics. Harvard University also did the same thing. You keep saying you have seven degrees. I have seven degrees. <laughs> Will you shut up? <laughs> <laughs> It's very annoying how ridiculous some of those stories are. For example, someone else hid $43 million cash in their Nigerian apartment. I live in the US, I have never seen a million dollar in my life. How somebody can get hold of $43 million in Nigeria, it, it baffles me. So then I started the show and I called it Keeping It Real with Adiola because I like to keep it real. <laughs> so when I started the show, I actually thought that Nigerian officials were the biggest scammers in Africa. 
until I started meeting other Africans and hearing their stories. And I found out that we have a lot in common than our differences. And some of their leaders are also scammers. As a matter of fact, some of their leaders are more notorious than our leaders. For example, the president of uh, Equatorial Guinea, Theodore Obiang, he's been in power for 39 years. And they call themselves a republic. That's not ironic. Um, and you know, as if that's not enough, he made his son the vice president six years ago. So the father is the president, the son is the vice president. How convenient is that? Also, Cameroon just had an election last month, and their president, Paul Bia, ran again for the seventh time. Okay, the seventh time. Oh, by the way, he promised that he would do better this time around if they give him his seventh chance. <laughs> So um, before he was president, he was prime minister for seven years, and he's been president for 36 years, but that's not enough. In this last election, he had to give out some condoms. I don't think we have the picture of the condoms right now. But yes, he gave out some, con some condoms to win the election. But you know, my show is not all negative. It's not all about what's wrong with uh, different parts of Africa. An important part of my show, an important aspect is featuring African, Africans that are doing amazing things, Africans that are affecting lives positively, Africans that have inspirational stories, stories of ordinary people who fight all odds to make something great of their lives. And you know, through this show, I've featured people and uh, a lot of Africans have gotten to know about somebody like Dr. Dr. Dennis Mokwege, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, who is from Congo. The man has operated on more than 50,000 women that were raped in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Also, I featured somebody like Wangari Mathai, a Kenyan woman who, who, who planted more than a million trees and stood up against injustices, risking her life. And um, I've also featured African leaders that are, doing, that are doing well. So while I talk about those that are not doing well, I also talk about those that are doing well so that other Africans that are not doing well, other African leaders that are not doing well can be shamed. So I've featured someone like the new prime minister of Ethiopia. Uh, the man has done great exploits since he became prime minister. He's done more than, in the last few months that he became prime minister, he's done more than all those who came before him. He has released political prisoners. He has made peace with Ethiopia. He made sure recently, this last month, that the Ethiopian cabinet is now 50% women. Now, that's a huge breakthrough that 50% women, yeah. And not just that, the Ethiopia just uh, appointed the first ever female president. Her name is Saleh Wakzodeh. So that's incredible that they're doing that. Yeah. So I've also featured someone like a Nigerian doctor in Texas who operated on an unborn baby. He took out the baby, did the surgery on the baby, and put the baby back in her mother's womb. And the baby was delivered uh, safely after nine months. And also, in my last episode that I did before coming to Australia, I featured the insp inspirational story of Terry Trent. She's a Zimbabwean woman who was married off at the age of 11 in exchange for a cow. Even though her father knew she wanted education, she would beg him, and he said no because she's a girl, she couldn't go to school, so he sent her brother to school, but her brother was not serious with school, so she taught herself how to read and write, and she was doing her brother's homework, uh, but, they, but then they married her off at the age of 11, but despite being abused by her husband, because the husband found out she wanted education, so he was beating her, despite that, she was able to teach herself how to read and write, get admitted to a university in the US, where she had her bachelor's, her master's, and her PhD, 
And um, somehow Oprah heard about her story and gave her $1.5 million, with which she had built more than 11 schools in Zimbabwe so that other girls can have access to education. And more than 6,000 children have been educated because of this woman. <clears throat> so, yes. Yeah. yeah. Because I needed my African audience to know about these stories because we don't see ourselves in the mainstream media. Um, so, but this experience of producing this show has taught me a lot of things. First of all, I've learned that the people that I'm fighting will fight me, <laughs> of course. But that's expected. The one that I didn't expect is the people that I'm fighting for would also fight me. And um, as a matter of fact, my biggest attack, believe it or not, has been from the people that I'm fighting for. And you know, for example, I've been accused of being sponsored by politicians. I get accused of that every day. So when I talk about what the ruling party is doing that is wrong, the opposite. Uh, some people would say that I've been sponsored by the opposition party, and when I talk about what the opposition party is doing that is wrong, they say that I've been sponsored by the ruling party. It's very hard for me to keep up with my sponsors, <laughs> <clears throat> depending on what I talk about. But you know, and um, despite my effort of being respectful, despite, you know, kneeling down for them, calling them uncles, I've been called all sorts of names since I started doing this show, and the one that they call me the most is a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> they call me a prostitute. And then I realized that when some African men, not all of them, no offense to the African men that are here, but some African men, when they realize that they cannot dispute what a woman said and they have nothing to say, they will just call her a prostitute. Um, apparently that's supposed to break me. <laughs> I didn't know because it did not. In fact, I get worried now when they don't call me a prostitute. I'm like, have they not seen my show? So, but, <laughs> but when I see them call me a prostitute, I'm like, yes, they've seen it. Okay, good. <laughs> now we're good. So, but you know, as the years went by, people became more receptive of what I'm doing. Um, they used to tell me at the time that, why don't you find a real job? Or oh, you're a woman. What do you women know about politics? Which is true. A lot of a lot of Nigerian women, I won't, I won't speak for all of Africa, but when I was growing up, a lot of Nigerian women don't get involved in politics. So they tell me, you're a woman, what do you know about, what do women know about politics? Get a real job. But it's becoming more receptive now. Now I will get emails from some men saying things like, oh, they never knew that a woman could reason or speak the way I do. And they probably think it's a compliment. I, I don't. Um, because a part of me wanted to say, well, maybe if you listen to the women around you, you would know they have a lot to say. But I would just tell them, thank you. <laughs> um, however, I like to say that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people that are genuinely interested in what I'm doing. And I really, really appreciate that. I won't be here without the people that love the show. Please give it up for Julian, for example. I don't know how he found me. Yeah, I, I still don't know how he found me, so, but here we are. And you know, um, the two things that bring me great joy in doing this show, first of all, is seeing Africans from different parts of the continent dialogue in the comment section of my show. So I love it when I see Nigerians talking to Ethiopians about something that I talked about, when I see people from Togo discussing with people from Cameroon, because I feel like, um, 
us Nigerians especially, I feel like we don't know enough about what's happening in other African countries. So that's part of my goal in talking about several countries is to bring Africans together for them to realize that we have more in common than our differences. And also the second thing that brings me joy is the Keeping It Real with Adiola Foundation, which I founded with my husband uh, some years ago. And the goal of finding this, uh, this foundation is just for my viewers to know that you don't have to be a politician to make a difference distribute the food to the IDPs ourselves. We got to see the IDPs. Um, so I like to thank the government of Bono State for making this a huge success. So the second day that we got there and I wore the outfit, it was really nice. So that second day we went to Bakasi camp. It's huge. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to have audio. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. So, and you know, we've been trying to make a little difference on our end. For example, in December of last year, which is when where this video is from, we went to uh, two of the IDP camps, the internally displaced people in Bonu, where Boko Haram have been killing people. Uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the Boko Haram terrorist group in Nigeria that have been that have killed thousands of people. So we went to some of the IDP camps. We were we partnered with another foundation to ship in a container of food to that place to share. So I went there and I got to hear stories of some of the displaced people. I got to meet many of them. And you know, many of them don't even want food. They just want to be empowered. Like there's a woman that I met that all she wants is a sewing machine. She knows how to sew. I don't know if we have her video. Also, there are so many of them that are skilled. Like this woman, for example, she was telling me that she knows how to sew and that she doesn't want to beg for food or beg for money, that she wants to be able to take care of herself, but she doesn't have a sewing machine. You know, all she needs is a sewing machine. She lost two children during the insurgency. So for someone like that, and you know, till now, I'm, I'm still trying to find where I can find a lot of sewing machines to, so that it's not just her, so that we can empower as many women as possible. If you know anybody that you can link me up with, that would be great. <laughs> I'm trying to find sewing machines that don't use electricity, uh, like the manual sewing machines. We can empower a lot of people with something like that. And also, um, we went to another IDP camp recently where, um, oh, by the way, I should say that we went to two IDP camps while I was there, and a few days after I left, there was a bomb explosion at one of the camps, which is why most of our politicians have never been there where I went. Most of our politicians, they will not go there, you know. They get paid all this money, and they're making a good fortune, so they don't really care about those people. So uh, a few days after I left, they, they told me there was a, a bomb explosion, so I'm really grateful that I was able to go and come back safely. Um, also, uh, September of this month, we, we were able to go to another IDP camp where people have, um, the herdsmen have been killing people a lot in Nigeria. So a lot of farmers have been displaced. So in September, I was able to raise more than $10,000 on my show. And that's the thing. Um, I was able to raise more than $10,000 last year as well to help IDPs. And so being able to raise more than $10,000 on my show in September of this year makes me really happy because I realized my viewers are not just watching, they're actively involved in making a difference. So with that money, we're able to provide food for another IDP camp in Benue State. And also uh, we had 10 medical doctors who volunteered to treat people all day. They were just treating hundreds of people, especially women and children. And just before coming here, I was able to raise um, more than 23,000 Australian dollars for a girl that has kidney disease and they were about to give up. You know, a lot of people have died like that. 
Uh, but they they had no hope. There was nothing coming in. And then suddenly it was like within two weeks they were able were able to raise the money and she's gonna have her surgery this month. So she's having another um, another chance at leaving because the viewers of the show cared. And when we started the foundation, I made I made sure that we have board members from day one for transparency and accountability uh, because there's no way I could have done any of this on my own. So the main point is if my viewers know that uh, if they don't take anything else away from my show, I just want them to know that they don't have to be politicians to make a difference. And so it's been a journey for me and for my viewers. And this month makes it seven years, actually, since I started doing this show. And I have not stopped, and I don't plan on stopping. <laughs> and it's because um, my uncles, they are still getting the message, I'm talking about the politicians. All of them, they are, I found out that many of them are watching. And so whether or not they change, at least they know that someone is watching. So hopefully you guys will subscribe to my YouTube channel. Ha! And um, <laughs> follow me on all social media handles. And thank you so much for letting me share my story. And I'm going to end this by signing out the way I sign out on my show. All right, y'all. It's been real. And I'm keeping it real right up in here. Until next week, I'm going to see y'all later. Peace out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adiola. Um, <clears throat> I suppose the first question is, what, um, what made you think that satire could be more effective than doing straight reporting? Why did you, why did you flick to satire? Because I can call them thieves directly. Mm. Like I talked about, respect is very important to them. So they would say you insulted them and you can be arrested actually because there has been some cases of uh, journalists that were detained uh, because of maybe a story they published or something. So for me, when you're relaxed, when, you, when I make you laugh, because that's the thing, I try to make people laugh in the show, they find it entertaining. And my goal is to reach them. I don't really care how, and satire has been my way of reaching them. I don't want them to be turned off before listening to what I have to say. If I just say it as it is, that, oh, you stole money, this person is wrong, they already know what to expect, so they will tune out, which is why satire is great. Everybody loves to laugh. I don't think I'm funny, though. But, <laughs> but when you make them laugh, they are more relaxed. They, they can laugh through their own insults. Someone like Dino Melaye will probably find my video about him funny. And I pick on him a lot because he used to be an activist. So he, he himself can watch the video and laugh at how stupid he is, which... So that's why I chose satire. Um, Umberto, wh why do humans have humour? And why do we laugh about matters that are serious? I just assumed it was because I was shallow, but is that... <laughs> Is there something, some highfalutin academic rationalisation you can give me? <laughs> um, well, I guess that some of the things that political satire achieves tell us a little bit about what, what humour does. Uh, I think humour, which is, by the way, a very universal phenomenon, all, all human cultures have humour, even if they choose to focus on different areas uh, and express it in different ways. Humour is, is very universal, and we know that, you know, infants laugh and giggle before they can even be taught uh, 
what what the meaning of that is. So clearly, it's a very strong human uh, um, feeling. Uh, I think one of the things it does is it gives us a relief. Uh, it gives us relief from when things are uh, things make no sense uh, or things are plainly wrong. Uh, in fact, one of the evolutionary theories for how humor evolves is in, in our cousins, the, the primates, in, uh, in a type of call that they issue when they want to say wrong, that wasn't correct, that wasn't true. Let's say they issue a call for snake in the grass, and then it wasn't a snake, it's something else. Then they will issue a, uh, a no-stress kind of call, which uh, looks a little bit like laughter. Uh, so there is, there is the element of dealing with a reality that we don't like, which gives a sense of relief, and I guess there is also the element of uh, playfulness, playing, because humor is contagious, and is. you show it yourself in, uh, in the laughter that you bring about in your videos, and that you cannot stop in yourself from going on and on, and usually <laughs> that is how humor affect us. I start laughing, somebody else picks up that laugh, and then everybody suddenly is laughing. And especially when you bring it to an art with the timing and, uh, and the composition that you give to it, then you, you have that playful element. I suppose, though, that that idea of release, in a way that uh, when people talk about satire, that idea kind of cuts both ways. Some people think that the release is uh, a good and important part of identifying what's wrong so that it can contribute to changing things. Other people would argue that satire, the problem with satire is that it's only release, that it defuses a situation without calling to action. Um, I'd be interested, Ajala, what do you think about that? Um, can, can satire do both those things? So actually, like, I, I'm being careful about that because some of the things that I talk about are really serious. For example, I, I, I've talked about recently how Boko Haram has beheaded two um, Red Cross workers that had been kidnapped for more than six months and the government didn't do whatever they were supposed to do to get them released. And then after the second one, after the first one was beheaded, we were hoping at least you know the terrorists were not joking. And then after the second one was, was beheaded, they said they did all they could. And, you know, I was on my show talking about how this is BS. If this was the president's daughter, you would never say you did all you could. And um, so there are times on my show that I'm very serious and very emotional. I've cried on my show before. And so I would have people write me that in one episode, they cried, they laughed, and they were inspired in one episode. So that's why I don't like to do just one story because just one story may be depressing, just one story may be so funny, but I wanted them to be educated about what happening as well. So even though I use satire a lot, it's not the um, it's not the same throughout the show. So it's like in and out. Like mm. once in a while I make them laugh and then I talk about something serious and then make them laugh. So I mix it. Um, would it be possible to make keeping it real with Ajola if you were still living in Nigeria? That's a very good question. Um, so that was there... an accident, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, are, there are two ways of answering that. The, 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 first question, the first answer that I normally would give is, I would say no, because I would have no electricity. And... <laughs> 
I would have to get a power generator. How do you record a video with the generator sound, you know, going off at the same time? The generators can be loud, unless I'm really rich and then I can afford solar power or whatever. So I would constantly have to stress about having electricity, which is very important for what I do. Also, I don't get fast internet service when I go to Nigeria. Some people do, I still don't know how they do it yet. So those things are very important to me. But also, people will ask me sometimes that, aren't you afraid? Uh, don't you feel like your life is in danger if you're doing this from Nigeria? Can you do this from Nigeria without feeling threatened? And I will tell people that I'm already endangered as it is. I'm already endangered if I'm living in Nigeria. I'm already an endangered species because um, if I'm traveling somewhere in Nigeria, I have no guarantee that I will get to where I'm going. We have a lot of accidents happening in Nigeria because the roads are bad. Some people will say that it's the enemies of progress or the witches and wizards. But the roads are bad. What do you expect when there's so much potholes on the road? So we have lots of accidents. So it's like Nigerians, the one time that Nigerians are united, first of all, it's when there's a soccer game, we're all united. And second of all, when they are traveling. So if you ever take a public transport in Nigeria, when you get on the bus, everybody comes together to pray before the bus leaves. <laughs> Whether you're Christian or Muslim or atheist, whatever, they will do the Christian prayer, everybody will say amen. They will do the Muslim prayer, everybody will say amen, because everybody wants to get to where they are going. And since the politicians have refused to fix the road, it's now in the hands of God. We, we <laughs> I'm so sorry, this is sad. We, <laughs> we depend on God for every single thing in Nigeria. Things that God would never come down to do, we put it on him, okay? He would never come down to fix the roads. So we expect God to protect us supernaturally, and they don't fix the roads. So they come together, they pray. So I tell people, if I'm traveling within Nigeria, I have no guarantee that I'll get to where I'm going because of accident. If an accident should happen, I have no guarantee that an ambulance will come to take me because we don't have a functioning 911 service in, in Nigeria. This is sad. Even if you call 911, I don't know what they have. It's not 911, but they will probably be like, why are you calling? What do you expect? Why don't you go to the hospital? <laughs> go to the hospital and then tell us what happens. So, <laughs> so I, I have no guarantee that an ambulance will take me to the hospital. If I, get, if I make it to the hospital, I have no guarantee that the doctors will treat me because if you don't have money, they may not touch you. I have watched people, I've heard about people dying because they didn't have money at the emergency. They just ignore them and let them die. People die every day because of that. And even if I have money, I have no guarantee that I will be treated because they may not have the equipment that they need to take care of me. That's why the president, after telling us that he will end medical tourism, he goes to London for medical treatment because he doesn't trust, I don't know, he doesn't trust Nigerian doctors or they don't have the equipment. So I tell people that my life is already endangered as it is. Why not do what I do, even if you have to do it afraid? Why not speak out, even if he has to get you in trouble because you're already endangered? And for people that worry about me in Nigeria, I tell them I'm safer than you are. If anything happens, I can call 911. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I would rather do it afraid than to not do it at all. Yeah, and in America, you can call 911 and be taken to a hospital where if you can't pay, you won't get service. So yeah. <laughs> I should move to Australia, right? Yeah, well, the, the socialist healthcare is not too bad. Um, 
Uh, well, we might move to questions. Shall we open I think up so, the yeah, floor for yeah. questions? Um, yeah. I'm sure that there are a lot of um, questions. Hi, Adiola. Hi. My name is Blessing. Nice I've been you. watching your show for like a really long time. Okay. Um, the question I have for you is, um, where do you see your show being in about three to five years? Like, what's your long-term goal for your show? I've been watching it since you were with Sahara Reporters, and I know that you're by yourself now, so I just wanted to know like what your goals are and how your viewers can help you get there. Are you an investor? Do you <laughs> <laughs> in the name of Jesus? <laughs> Um, there's definitely a lot that I would love to do with this show right now, and we were just talking about that today. Uh, one of the things that I would love to do is to give more coverage to Africans in the diaspora, because I made mention of it earlier that in the US, we don't see ourselves in the mainstream media. I don't know how it is like here in Australia, but there are millions of Africans in the US, and we only see ourselves on TV twice when we've done something really exceptional, like the Nigerian doctor that operated on the baby in Texas, he was all over the news. And they usually make sure they don't say that he's Nigerian, they just say he's American. And then the second time we see ourselves in the news is when we've done, when we've committed a crime. Now they make sure to say that we are Africans, or that our parents are That would Africans, never happen in Australia. Or that, <laughs> or they say that our grandparents were of African descent, they make sure to point that out. So that, since I got to the US, that really pains me that Africans are not well represented here, and despite the fact that there are millions of Africans here contributing to the economy, because all the, a lot of Africans in the US, they are very well educated and they, hold, they get good jobs, so they contribute to the economy. So I would love to be able to talk, tell the stories of Africans in the diaspora, and hopefully someday I like to travel through Africa and either produce my show from different countries or just feature what, Z what Zambia is like for the world to see what is Zimbabwe like, what is Nigeria really like, like both sides, not just the nice, but also the good, the bad, the ugly, and just for people to see that it's a normal place to be. And that's important because when I moved to the US, I found that a lot of people didn't know much about Africa. And so I had people asking me questions like, do you have lions roaming on the streets? Do you guys sleep on trees? Have you ever seen a TV? How did you learn English? Like, they ask me questions like that, so I feel like I need to shed more light to what Africa is really like. Can I just say on that as well, just talking to Ajola, the, the size of the um, African diaspora is amazing. Yeah. It's like 150 million uh, yeah. people. And what, but the thing that I find so impressive about what you do is that um, some people see that market and see it as a, a com purely commercial opportunity. You know, it's a, a, an audience that can be preached to in order to make money, but it's really striking that Ajola is committed to um, journalistic independence, uh, truth-telling, and accessing a large audience, not to make money out of them, but to um, share the, her values and her messages. And I personally just think that's um, incredibly impressive uh, I mean, and makes your job a lot harder as well. <laughs> I mean, making money would not be bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for real, we are really underrepresented in the media mm. in the US. So what is it like here? Are Africans really represented? Well, you could, on Four Corners tonight, I think there'll be uh, some uh, presence. But, no, it's, I mean, the size... <laughs> uh, yeah, the size um, of the... Um, population is yeah, smaller, true. but it, it, it's been exploited and, you know, it's described as, 
exactly the same thing that you're talking about, you know, over-representation of ethnic origin in crime reporting, which to the point, it, you know, has been described, I think, in Victoria as like a moral panic at the moment. Um, so, um, like many things in, in Australia, we have similar problems, just on a slightly different scale. Hello, yeah, Gerard Hosier. Uh, it was interesting. I really enjoyed your, your program. I'm from actually from the Caribbean, Wonderful. and there's sort of so many similarities oh, okay. <laughs> in terms of government and uh, you know just the way of life. Um, but one of my my question, you sort of were just talking about it, was um, Africa being portrayed in Australian media. Not. We never ever see or hear anything about Africa, and if it is, it's somebody parachuted in, looking through the keyhole of, um, you know, what's the threat to us, you know, or how can we sort of feel good by doing something very benign. But it's never understanding the complicatedness of Africa, which is complicated in so many layers, you know. Um, so um, sometimes I think it's just very sad that the editorial lines in Australian media almost exclude Africa and just turn it into a cartoon um, outfit and then don't jump on the bandwagon when it comes time to demonize a part of our own society here in Australia. That's like what you just I said. mean, it's certainly striking um, if you watch, I mean, watch, watch the Channel 9 news and then the ABC News, and then the SBS News, and then watch Al Jazeera. Um, it's it, it, even um, the uh, you know the, the multicultural broadcaster news service, which has far more international news than any other, is just I, I find watching half an hour of Al Jazeera is just opens your eyes like nothing else. Um, I, to some extent, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a Local news always dominates, um, but what do you think, Adiola? No, I, I think you're absolutely right, which is why we need to change the narratives, and that's why I think it's very important for us Africans to tell our stories, because no one else can tell our stories adequately like we would, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing, and that's why I love to feature Africans that are doing amazing things. Um, it's just to open people's eyes. So I, I think we Africans need to do more in telling our own stories. Hi there. Um, my name is Alfred. Uh, the more I hear about the Africa stories, the more it reminds me of Indonesia, just how complex it is. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of in common. Uh, but um, my question is, would you say, this culture, besides the logistical challenges of like, you know, doing your own satire shows in your own countries and things like that, would you say the culture and the political um, climate of those particular area matters? And maybe, I guess, comment on that? Because, you know, China definitely doesn't do that. No, absolutely no way, for example. And then, you know, in parts of the US, you can only mention things and mention certain topics. And then there's the taboo topics as well. And, you know, what do you have to say about that? I think the political climates definitely matter, but that's what we're trying to break. Um, in different parts of Africa, politicians are being worshipped and seen as gods. Even in Nigeria, there are some people that see politicians as touch not, and not just politicians, men of God. So many of our men of God have become God of men in Nigeria. 
So a lot of people will write me that it's okay for you to talk about politicians, but don't talk about men of God. Just leave them for God to judge. Um, which, which bothers me because the church has really failed when it comes to the, the situation of things in Nigeria. This, they're supposed to represent Jesus, and there are no way representing Jesus. They're just enriching themselves. And so it bothers me that a, a so-called Christian would think that's okay and just leave these people to continue to exploit the poor people. But they have no problem with me making politicians accountable. And you know, even the Bible says the judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So like the Christian leaders that are supposed to help the people, and you know, on my show, I will talk about how the missionaries that brought the gospel to Africa, especially to Nigeria, many of them, their legacy has been building, they built schools and hospitals. They made the schools free. Some of the missionary schools are still standing there in Nigeria. And it was free. That's how some of our parents went to school. And they provided medical services. But the pastors of today in Nigeria, they are just buying private jets. We have pastors with four different private jets, one pastor. And they are also building churches everywhere. Almost every block in Nigeria now has a church. And they expect people to give and give and give. But they are not taking care of the people. In a situation where the church will contribute money, to build a school, and then the church members cannot afford to attend the school because they make it very expensive. I don't think that's right. So um, definitely the political atmosphere is very important, but that's what I'm trying to break, this idea of worshiping the leaders, seeing them as untouchable, and also worshiping the spiritual leaders and seeing them as touch not my anointed. I'm trying to really break that mentality and let people know this is not how it is everywhere. And if you look at developed countries, they hold all their leaders accountable. Can, can I just add something on that as well? Um, uh, globalization is complicated too, um, but one of the things that struck me doing the Chaser Lecture over a few years is I think there is something to be said for the globalization of some types of, of satire. Um, thinking back to the first Chaser Lecture, we had uh, Bassem Yusuf an Egyptian doctor who would watch The Daily Show. And he started making an Arabic version of that uh, in his laundry. And by the middle of the um, Arab Spring, he had a, a Middle Eastern wide audience of 60 million. The fact that he was doing it in Egypt was what made that show go off. So it was definitely local in one sense, but it was the model of John Stewart, which is essentially almost like a documentary satire. Um, it's clip-based commentary, which is what Adyola does as well. And then, and then the second year we had Sakdia Maruf, who uh, Indonesia's first uh, Muslim veil-wearing um, stand-up comedian. And uh, she got interested in comedy. It's one of the byproducts of uh, the Suharto regime being backed by the US military, was that uh, she would come home from a secular school where she couldn't wear her veil She'd come home, put her veil on inside, and watch um, American sitcoms. And that developed her English and gave her a desire to be a comedian. Um, so I think that um, there's something to be said for um, that, that sort of... You see phenomena like the, the, the sorts of shows that Jon Stewart started doing all over the world now. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. You can't do it in China? Not yet, no. Not yet. No. 
you showed briefly a segment on uh, Nigeria being the largest producer of oil, and yet you have queues of people and oil shortages, you know, and people queuing up to get oil and so on. Um, and we spoke about, Julian spoke about uh, globalization, and it triggered a thought in me that we have a similar problem here. We are the largest producer of gas in the world, and yet we have a gas shortage. We pay the maximum price for gas, and we are supposed to poison our agricultural land in order to produce more gas to get over the gas shortage locally. So my idea too is maybe you can extend your satire franchise to Australia and also do this coverage. Yeah, well, yeah, bravo. You know what? We um, l last year we had El Chaguire Bipolar from Venezuela, and exactly the same thing. Incredibly oil-rich country, and uh, they go across the border to get cheaper fuel. Unbelievable. Um, hi, I'm Zane from uh, Macquarie University. Um, this question is probably get him out. about. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, your question, sir. Um, <laughs> just, it's about satire in general. Okay, all right. I, I was just watching, um, I saw a statistic about um, The Daily Show and Jon Stewart that during the mid-2000s, he was in the top five most trusted news people in the United States, you know, considering that it was a political satire show on Comedy Central. And, you know, fast forward to 2018, we have a situation where there's a distrust in mainstream news, both by the left and especially now because of the age of Trump, on the right as well. And I was just wondering what all of you thought, what the role of political satire is now in this sort of post-truth era where both the fringes of the left and the right have this sort of ingrained distrust in mainstream media. There clearly is a breakdown of uh, trust in traditional news reporting and I think it's important for that trust to be restored. I, think, I just think it's impossible for satire to fully replace um, traditional reporting and there is real value to believing in and striving for objectivity, even if um, always there are going to be biases. But, but I think one of the things that really cut through, I certainly felt it with Jon Stewart, and I think you can see it in Ajala's work as well, that there is, there's actually something about moving away from the the frame of objectivity and speaking indirectly which audiences recognise as authentic and they identify and they therefore trust. Um, and I think it's to some extent moving, from, moving away from mere reporting into analysis and that's definitely what Jon Stewart um, pioneered. John Oliver is probably the most sort of prominent um, exponent of it now. And you look at some of the pieces that he does now, and they're like 12, 15 mm -hmm. minute research mm -hmm. clip based um, tracts. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but there's a sort of secret source in there, which is that trust. I think if, if it became apparent that the jokes were, um, deliberately misrepresenting clips or just wrong, I don't think shows like that could continue. So it's, there's a sort of weird, I don't know, I don't, thank God there's no satirist code of ethics yet, but, um, uh, but maintaining that trust is clearly important. And I think that the, um, the sort of dull, formulaic 
approach of a lot of standard television news in particular, people are just tuned out of. They see through it, they don't trust it anymore. And while I think that it would be would probably be in a better spot if there was more trust, again, people are twigging to the lack of authenticity in that coverage, I think. Um, so with the issue of Trump, it's quite unfortunate. And um, I can't say much because I still have to go through immigration when I get to the US. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but for real, it's a situation of knowing the influence that you have and using it to, to basically render the media, um, what's the word, creditless. Can I say that? Yeah to take away the media's authenticity, this whole idea of fake news, fake news. And um, the thing that bothers me is that he doesn't realize the influence that he has is beyond the US. I don't know why some Nigerians are so in love with that man. It just, I, I still don't get it. But you know, he rules like many of our dictators in Africa, so he has a lot in common with many African rulers. Um, Nigerians now will say CNN is fake news, and that bothers me because I, and I also think people sometimes they like, they don't like the truth, so they don't even want to hear it because they don't want to deal with it. For example, you know, he, uh, he said recently that the American soldiers should kill the caravan, the, the what's it called, they should, if the immigrants. Um, that are passing by, that they should, if they stone them, they should consider it a rifle. And then last week, Nigerian soldiers killed at least 45 protesters that attacked them. They fired at them, they killed them. And the Nigerian soldier went on Twitter and they posted the video of Trump saying these things that something like, you know, even Trump justifies something like this. And so the word came after them like, are you seriously? justifying the killing of civilians and quoting the words of Donald Trump in America. Like, even Americans will not do what he said. Why would you do that in Nigeria? And so then they deleted the video, but the damage is done. So it's not just like uh, disarming the media, rendering the media powerless, rendering the media, calling the media fake news, but also the mindset of the people. Like he said, they already tuned out before even listening which trying to recover from that would be hard because the media is also playing into his games. They are, instead of ignoring him, I feel like if they just ignore him for two weeks, the world would be a better place. But they can't, they are not ignoring him. They keep give, feeding in into his bait, you know? They are trying to defend themselves to say how authentic they are instead of just, just ignore someone like that. He loves attention. Ignore him for two weeks and he will be the one begging for coverage, you know. If I can add a comment to your question, uh, I think that good satire also has an advantage in such a polarized world because fake news can tell you that something is white or that something is black and all you're left with is whether you're gonna believe it or not. But if you get good satire, so look for example back to one of the videos that we saw, I give you four gunmen I give you a tree, and I give you 11 hours, and then I laugh. It's up to you now. It's your decision. It's your responsibility whether you're buying this story or not. So you make your decision. I've given you facts, and I have revealed the absurdity. 
and now it's up to you. So in a sense, you are empowered to now make your decision. And that is, that for me is one of Absolutely, the real yeah. strengths of satire. And, I mean, a joke is, is an active community. You, it's, the, it's an understanding between the person speaking and the audience, usually that the meaning is different from what's said. Um, and yeah, it can be used in a way that, um, uh, that sort of communicates facts, but in a different way from being spoon-fed them. So yeah, that's, that's very true. Hello, uh, my name is Jennifer. Um, my question relates to the political effectiveness and reach of political satire. So this is for the whole panel. Um, so continuing on with this idea of, say, American uh, political satirists, it seems to be par for the course for a lot of like late night talk show hosts so, like John o Oliver and Stephen Colbert to do like, you know, um, a political satire monologue. Um, my question is, one of the criticisms seems to be that um, this sort of satire is becoming uh, in some ways like say a left wing echo chamber. It only reaches the people who already uh, share those kinds of political views. Uh, in your experience or opinion, um, do you think satire can be effective in reaching across that divide or are we too polarised? And I'd also love to hear more about your specific uh, context as well. Um, look, I think most, most of the time most people are preaching to the converted, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think it is possible for whether it's particular clips or particular shows to get bigger than that. Um, and sometimes that makes a bubble that's going to burst because too many people with too many diverse views uh, think they like the same thing and um, realise that, that it won't. But um, satire is never going to be the, like at the vanguard of the revolution. It's like that's just not its role. Um, and... But I think that a political movement that um, loses its sense of humour should always be distrusted. Um, and certainly a political system that, um, that loses its sense of humour. And it's a sign of a, of a society that's not free where jokes aren't tolerated. Um, yeah, the, the great Milan Kundera novel, The Joke, is premised on that one sort of ironic comment in a postcard that leads someone to be put into the... Um, the sort of Eastern European gulag um, and, you know, I'd be willing to bet, as, as um, the previous question asker said, that you know, there's not a whole lot of political satire in um, China. I don't, I don't think there's a late night show, show in North Korea. Um, so it may not be, you know, the, uh, the paradigm of political effectiveness, but its existence is a symptom of a society that's getting some things right, I think. Thank you. Um, continuing from whether it is effective or not, I would say though satire is not um, confrontational, it is not uh, forceful, it still creates the conversation. You know, people st you know, start thinking in that direction, uh, builds their opinion, and wait for the election date. If election is conducted properly, they will still cast their vote according to the image painted. Um, my contribution will be more of a feedback to Adiola. I would say... You got a pen? 
I will say thank you for being courageous, uh, starting those conversations, especially on Nigeria, subtly but effectively. A lot of people are listening, a lot of people are watching, like you said, and most people are paying attention. You are painting a picture of what our leaders should be. Even though they may not uh, come out and talk, they are also watching. It is not good for a person to view themselves being laughed at at what they did, thinking that no one is watching. It brings their stupidity to light and it makes the people to think that, yes, we can actually look at this leader as this uncle, as you call them, as a thief, which they are. So, um, you know, having a discussion on what the leaders are doing prepares the youth to take a different direction, prepares them to vote correctly when the time comes. So uh, you are actually molding the, the uh, future leaders the way they should be. You are empowering the youth and actually charting a way of what they need to be. Also, extending it to other African countries, you know, reaches out and uh, makes uh, every individual that you have spoken about to think that, well, she's not talking about me. She's only covering a range of people. So you are doing a good job for the people. Thank you, sir. Thank from you. wherever, you know, you prepare it. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Well, I actually think this comment is the right moment to I couldn't agree uh, more. What a, what a stop perfect the night. Q&A yeah. session because we soon need to wrap up. And I would actually like to invite Julian to perhaps say a few um, concluding words well, and sum up. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I don't think it could be summed up better than um, our last speaker. Um, Adiola is doing an amazing thing and it's speaking to people throughout the diaspora, but it's also speaking to people in Africa. Um, I, the last thing I would do is wish you competitors. I wish you no competitors at all. Uh, <laughs> you should own that space entirely, but oh, it's important no. I'm and valuable. I'm happy to see more people yeah. doing what I'm doing uh, now. You're so. too nice, too nice. Um, it's important and valuable work, um, and I look forward to the day that the, you know, the Adiola network is... Um, got everyone in the, in the Oprah Winfrey network jealous because she's so big now. I think that's more of that sort of uh, voices like yours are important for the world. Um, we're honoured to have you here. Um, and so I think I'd say on behalf of everyone, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>